The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was a pioneer, a beacon of modernism, a journalist, a writer, an artist, a poet-slash-novelist, an early avatar of queer literature, and an expatriate, a Greenwich Village icon, and a notorious iconoclast, and above all, a genius. Her name was Juna Barnes. We'll have her story today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome, 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 everyone. I'm so glad you could join us today. We are still in some dark times around the world, but at the end of every pot of darkness is a rainbow-colored piece of gold, as my drunken Irish friend used to tell me, and I believed him because he was so often right about that kind of thing. So hang in there, everyone. Please do stay safe. And in the meantime, let's talk some literature. We've got Juna Barnes here today. I'm reminded of something my cousin said about my grandmother, my saintly Swiss grandmother, who was stronger than I was, physically stronger, I think. She had powerful arms that had served her well when helping her husband run the cheese factory there in small town Wisconsin. Her husband died young. She had raised their little girls on her own. She worked hard and was a pretty amazing person. But of course, I saw her in her older years, gray-haired, a good cookie maker, someone who gave hugs, someone who liked to play Scrabble and was a little out of touch with the times. And then I met up with my cousin in Taiwan and we hadn't seen each other for a while. He was older. And of course, the great thing that we had in common was her, my grandmother. My mother was his aunt and vice versa, but that's different. His sisters were my cousins and vice versa, but that's different too. We had different relationships with those people, but my grandmother was his grandmother. In that, we were the same. And he said, Grandma Rose, boy, now that is one kick-ass woman. (laughs) Kick-ass woman. I would never have used that phrase in a million years. Not for anyone, let alone her, Grandma Rose. But as soon as he said it, I thought, yes, that fits. Kick-ass woman. Indeed, she was. And so we come to Juna Barnes. We could say a million things about her, and we will. But let's not lose sight of that one. She was a kick-ass woman. But she's not that well-known and not that often read of the great modernists. Her circle, she might not even be in the top 20 of famous names. Let's just count those who wrote in English. We won't even count the strain of modernism that ran through German or Italian or French literature, even there, even just in English, we start with Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, and with our focus on Paris in the 1920s and the satellites around that, we can add James Joyce and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway and Gertrude Stein. These are all household names, aren't they? Or pretty close. Literary households anyway. Wyndham Lewis and Ford Maddox Ford. We could include William Faulkner in The Modernist, can't we? And E.E. E. Cummings and William Carlos Williams and H.D. Are we at Juna Barnes yet? In terms of fame today? Maybe. 
Maybe with HD we're getting there, but look who I skipped over when I stuck to English. Rilke and Kafka and Svevo and Andre Gide and Proust and Musil. Modernism has a lot of famous names. This was a, a great era for writers and for famous writers, for those of us who read and revere literature. So why Juna Barnes? Where does she fit? I'll give you four reasons why we're going to explore her story today and why it's worth spending some time with her. Number one, Nightwood. This was her masterpiece, a 1936 novel that blew everyone away and that still resonates today. We're going to build up to that. I think we'll get to that last today. Number two, the company she kept. All those names I mentioned, she knew most of them, hung around them, and they admired her for her wit. As a magazine writer... She conducted an interview of James Joyce that is one of the best and most evocative portraits of him, really of anyone, that I've ever read. We'll give you a taste of that essay today. She was part of the scene. That's what I mean by the company she kept. First in New York, and then in the Paris of the 1920s, England in the 1930s, and then in Greenwich Village, where she was reclusive, but she was still had kind of iconic status for about 40 years after that, she was part of the scene. Number three, her bohemian lifestyle and life. She represents an era, the kind of free spirit, the type of edgy, scandalous person, part flapper girl, if the flapper girl is razor sharp, edgy. Did I say edgy already? Edgy, <laughs> it's worth repeating. A poet. Cynical, soulful, smart as hell. And number four on our list of reasons why we're spending some time with Juna Barnes today, her just who she was, her early life, her background. She had a fascinating childhood, a fascinating life. She lived a long time. And throughout that, she was unafraid to break down doors. She was bisexual at a time when that was still risky, both legally and in terms of reputation as an artist and a, an employee and a cultural figure and just even as a person. She was in pain, and at times she could cause pain too. We'll cover all of that. In fact, we're going to start with that, her childhood and her background. We'll get going with that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Juna Barnes was born in 1892 on a hill called Storm King Mountain, which was originally called Klinkisberg by Henry Hudson due to the wrinkled rock cliffs visible as he sailed up the river for the first time. Then it was called Boterberg, or Butter Hill, because the Dutch thought it sat like a lump of butter on the horizon. Oh, my goodness, these people lacked imagination. It was left to 19th century writer Nathaniel Parker Willis to say, this mountain is the monarch of these hills. The clouds are like his beard, and he seems like he can change the weather. Ordering up storms. Shouldn't we call him Storm King? The name stuck, and 40 or so years after that, in a log cabin, Juna Barnes was born. Her family was part of a whole group of artistic types who lived in the Hudson Valley, 60 or so miles north of the bustling New York City. It was already a metropolis then, with skyscrapers just starting to be built, and more than two million people crowding the streets. We tend to think of the artists who lived in the Hudson Valley as painters, especially the Hudson River School painters, but there were literary salons too, including one hosted by Juna Barnes's grandmother, Zadel Barnes who was a writer and journalist and suffragette and who raised Juna after her parenting situation kind of fell apart. Here's what had happened. Her father, Wald Barnes, was an artistic flop, a composer and painter and musician who didn't have much success, but he had the support of his mother, Zadel or Zadel, who thought he was a misunderstood artistic genius. Nice mother to believe that of her son. Wald believed in polygamy, so although he married Juna's mother, Elizabeth, he also brought in his mistress, Fanny, to live with them when Juna was five. Wald had nine kids with the two women. They all lived under one roof, and he had little or no income. And so he relied on his mother, and his mother was forced to beg friends for money. The kids weren't sent to school, and Juna learned what she could from her father and grandmother and helped to take care of the younger kids. And in the end, she had a focus on writing and art and music in her background, but almost nothing in the areas of math or spelling. She also suffered from abuse during these years, although the stories are incomplete and the details, historical details, are somewhat murky. They were revealed in some letters and in some suggestive passages in Juna's fiction, but have not been directly recounted by Juna, so we don't know for sure. I think biographers are generally agreed that when she was 16, she was either sexually assaulted or raped, possibly by her own father and possibly by a neighbor who acted with her father's knowledge. Either way, awful. There are also some suggestions that Juna's grandmother may have molested her, but Juna wrote angrily, although she wrote angrily about these incidents later in life, we don't know many of the details other than what she left behind in kind of a cryptic fashion in her fiction and her plays. And she did have a relationship in letters with both her father and her grandmother that suggests that, at the very least, she didn't break things off with them completely. But what a chaotic childhood and adolescence 
she had. When she was 17, she was forced to marry the mistress Fanny's brother, who was 52. She dumped him almost immediately, after weeks. What a life. It's hard not to view her as incredibly strong to have emerged with the personality and the gifts that she did, but it's also hard not to wonder what kind of demons were roiling around inside that mind, haunting her for the rest of her life. From that childhood, she escaped. She made it to New York City, where she lived with her mother, who had left Wald and was trying to earn some money somehow. And at this point, Juna became the primary earner for that part of the family. She went to art school, but she soon found work as a reporter at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, the same paper that Walt Whitman had once edited a few decades before. Her job interview seems to have been somewhat one-sided, and in fact, if you go to the Brooklyn Museum, you can see a quote from that interview painted on the wall. I can draw and I can write, and you'd be a fool not to hire me, Juna told them. And she could. She could do both. We'll get to the Joyce interview in a moment. Some great writing there. But let's celebrate this period for now, from 1912 to 1921, when Juna was in her 20s and she wrote for newspapers and magazines in New York, including Vanity Fair and our old friend McCall's, which we talked about in our Willa Cather episode, great magazine of the time. Juna was not just a stunning observer and a vivid prose stylist. She was also an early proponent of what we now call gonzo journalism. She was 50 years ahead of the men like Hunter S. Thompson or new journalists like Tom Wolfe and George Plimpton and Gay Talese, that's how I always say it, although I think he says Gay Talese, who became famous for that style of journalism, where the journalist is a participant in the action. She was sent to report on a gorilla that had arrived at the zoo. For example, while Juna entered the cage, the first woman, she said, who had come within caressing or battling distance with the gorilla, and then she had a conversation with the gorilla. A professor had told her that Dinah, that was the gorilla's name, had her own way of talking. So Juna Barnes picked up on that and said, quote, look here, Dinah, what conclusions have you come to regarding our United States? End quote. And then she writes, quote, she took her knees into her arms with an air of long-studied calculation that would have given an analytical novelist infinite pleasure. Rocking from side to side on hairy haunches, she began to laugh an extraordinary laughter that disturbed the virile hair upon her breast. Her mind was as a blank of well-arranged ignorance, end quote. Eventually, Dinah the gorilla did respond to Juna, although Juna in the article notes that she's interpreting somewhat freely according to the professor's rules. And Dinah says she noticed the taxi meter climbing too fast when she was on her way to the zoo and that in New York, quote, the sun has no chance and the moon is only a past memory, end quote. She adds that she's looking forward to trying chewing gum. Sent to cover the suffragettes who were on a hunger strike, Juna subjected herself to being force-fed as the activists had been. The account was harrowing, and Juna expressed her pride at sharing the experience with those women, quote, the bravest of my sex. Throughout her journalism, she focused on women and women's issues. Perhaps this was part of her beat and what she was assigned by her editors, but it's not as if she was forced to stick to sewing circles and recipes either. She went to boxing matches and interviewed both the heavyweight champion and also focused on the women who attended the matches asking why they were there and what they hoped to gain. 
But let's set aside Juna's journalism for now until we get to Paris and Joyce, because she was also writing plays at the, during this period, including some for the Provincetown Players, a theatrical group based in Greenwich Village that was run out of a building that had recently been a stable. The horses are always just outside, Juna said, or wait, let me get the actual quote. She said the theater was, quote, always just about to be given back to the horses, end quote. But she was in good company at the Provincetown Theater, plays by Edna St. Vincent Millay and Wallace Stevens and Theodore Dreiser came out of this theater, and it was where Eugene O'Neill got his start. Juna also wrote some scandalous poems and drawings, which were called rhythms and drawings instead of poetry and <laughs> poems and drawings. They were about sex, including sex between women. The collection was called The Book of Repulsive Women, and it was published in November of 1915. This thing is a bizarre little book. It should have been censored by the standards of the day, but it escaped the notice, maybe because the poetry was a little difficult to follow, but it gained a reputation as a steamy and licentious book, which led the publisher to jack up the price from 15 cents to 50 cents, and he pocketed the difference. The publisher's name is right in the inscription in the book, edited by Guido Bruno in his garret on Washington Square, New York. Guido Bruno was one of those quirky figures who pop up from time to time in literature. He was the P.T. Barnum of the literary scene, they used to say, and I just got the sinking feeling in my stomach that maybe you think Jack Wilson is such a character in literary... <laughs> in the field of literature. Let's hope that's not true. I'm on a tour of these authors, and I guess we gawk at them in a way, but Guido Bruno used to actually charge tourists admission, and then he would take them to see bohemians in their natural element, painting and writing and so on. Come see a real bohemian. Sort of like those days in Goa, in India, when I was backpacking and relaxing on the beach, and buses of Indian tourists passed by, their faces pressed to the window as the tour guide told them to look left for a sight of the hippies. And all I could do was wave and smile, hoping they were not disappointed by what they saw. So that's Guido Bruno in one of Juna Barnes's earliest creative works. And although it's viewed as groundbreaking today and a strong indication that great things were in store for Juna, she didn't like it much later in life. She thought the title was idiotic the book of repulsive women, and she didn't think much of the contents either. Although, I happen to like the drawings quite a bit. Let's send Juna to Paris now, as McCall's magazine did. This was 1921, between the World Wars, and there was a thriving artistic community enjoying that great city on the cheap, and things were happening. Hemingway arrived in 1921 as well, and Gertrude Stein was there, and Picasso and Matisse... And Fitzgerald got there soon after, and of course, James Joyce, who lived there for 20 years in self-imposed exile, writing Ulysses in Finnegan's Wake. Portions of Ulysses had come out in America in the Little Review from 1918 to 1920. They were serializing it, and it was enough to set the literary world on fire. Juna arrived in awe of him, very eager to meet him, and with a letter of introduction. The two got along well, Joyce liked her, and they spent months together, sometimes with his wife Nora and his boys, sometimes talking in cafes. The pattern seems to be Joyce would write all day, and then at night he'd be willing to go out, at least to see Juna. They would spend time talking in the cafes, and she wrote up her profile for Vanity Fair 
called A Portrait of the Man Who Is, at Present, One of the More Significant Figures in Literature. Let's take our final break and then come back with some quotes from that piece after this. essay on Joyce. I'm tempted to read the entire thing. It's truly a masterpiece, in my opinion. I revere her description of Joyce, who often comes across to us as sort of aloof, kind of entitled, drunken, angry about the publishers, acting the part of a genius. Most accounts of Joyce in Paris in the 1920s are of him demanding money from people who don't understand or appreciate him fully, although the people who give him the money are in fact the people who do who do appreciate him and and who do what they can for him. But a different Joyce comes across in Juna's piece. This is not the one who's agonizing over art and bitter about it, but who's agonizing over art and happens to be very good at it, which is different, and who happens to be smart and funny and quirky and intense at times, but also sad and shy and kind at times, too. It's a much fuller picture of Joyce than most portraits. The thought that Joyce was once a singer may not come as a revelation to the casual reader of his books, Barnes writes. One must perhaps have spent one of those strangely aloof evenings with him, or have read passages of his Ulysses, as it appeared in the little review, to have realized the singing quality of his words. For tradition has it that a singer must have a touch of bravado, a joyous putting forth of first the right leg and then the left, and a sigh or two this side of the cloister, and Joyce has none of these. I had read Dubliners over my coffee during the war. I had been on one or two theatrical committees just long enough to suggest the production of Exiles, his only play. The portrait had been consumed, turning from one elbow to the other, but it was not until I came upon his last work that I sensed the singer. By his last work, she means Ulysses. Lines like, so stood they both a while in wan hope, sorrowing one with other. Or, thither the extremely large wains bring poison of the fields, spherical potatoes and iridescent kale and onions, pearls of the earth, and red, green, yellow, brown, russet, sweet, big, bitter, ripe, pomelated apples, and strawberries fit for princes, and raspberries from their canes. Or, still better, the singing humor, in that delicious execution scene in which the, quote, learned prelate knelt in a most Christian spirit in a pool of rainwater, 
End quote. Yes, then I realized Joyce must indeed have begun life as a singer, and a very tender singer. And, because no voice can hold out over the brutalities of life without breaking, he turned to quill and paper, for so he could arrange, in the necessary silence, the abundant inadequacies of life as a laying out of jewels, jewels with a will to decay. End quote. I'm going to read that again. <laughs> That's so good. Ah, yes, this is Juna Barnes. Yes, then I realized Joyce must indeed have begun life as a singer, and a very tender singer, and, because no voice can hold out over the brutalities of life without breaking, he turned to quill and paper, for so he could arrange, in the necessary silence, the abundant inadequacies of life, as a laying out of jewels, jewels with a will to decay. End quote. What a fantastic description of Joyce's writing. It's no wonder Joyce got along well with her. She clearly got what he was trying to do and was able to articulate it in a almost a Joycean kind of way, although also a straightforward way. She'll get into modernism herself in her work, but here in the essay, she's writing with in sort of a perfect journalistic style, but also a slightly elevated style, kind of a poetic journalism. She talks about the impression that she had of him before she got to Paris based on a photograph where his beard was, quote, descending into the abyss of the hidden bosom, end quote. And the rumors that he was going blind had reached her, and the quote from Ezra Pound that Joyce was the only man on the continent who continued to produce in spite of poverty and sickness, working from 8 to 16 hours a day. The legend of James Joyce had reached the literary world in New York, and Juna Barnes arrived ready to see more. And then she did arrive in Paris. She sat in a cafe and, quote, I saw approaching out of the fog and damp a tall man, with head slightly lifted and slightly turned, giving to the wind an orderly distemper of red and black hair, which descended sharply into a scant wedge on an outthrust chin. End quote. She drew a, a drawing of Joyce for the to accompany the article. It's one of those that uh, sort of captures what Joyce looks like. It's, it's very well done, and when you see it, you'll think, yes, I've seen this before. And if you haven't seen it before, it's because you've seen a photograph, and so it, it perfectly captures what Joyce uh, looked like in those days. They started talking after that arrival, According to Juna Barnes in her article, after that arrival by Joyce at the cafe, the two of them started talking about the trial, the Ulysses trial against the Little, the little Review, where Ulysses was being suppressed, and Joyce ordered white wine and talked about it. He was glad to have Juna Barnes as a listener because she was up on all of the latest. She knew all about the story. This is, had been uh, big news in the literary world at the time. She tells us, quote, The pity is he said, seeming to choose his words for their age rather than their aptness. The public will demand and find a moral in my book, or worse, they may take it in some more serious way, and on the honor of a gentleman, there is not one single serious line in it. End quote. Choosing his words for their age rather than their aptness. <laughs> Very nice journalistic touch. Then Joyce lights a cigar, and this happens. Quote, 
All great talkers, he said softly, have spoken in the language of Stern, Swift, or the Restoration. Even Oscar Wilde. He studied the Restoration through a microscope in the morning and repeated it through a telescope in the evening. And in Ulysses, I asked. They are all there, the great talkers, he answered. Them and the things they forgot. In Ulysses, I have recorded, simultaneously, what a man says, sees, thinks, and what such seeing, thinking, saying does to what you Freudians call the subconscious. But as for psychoanalysis, he broke off, it's neither more nor less than blackmail. End quote. Do you not want to be there, listener, <laughs> sitting there with James and Juna? As they discuss this, as they discuss Ulysses when it's still fresh, when it's still something fresh and marvelous that they are discovering together when they're talking about Freud, when that's still fresh and marvelous and it's being debated and it's the mind is being unlocked, literature is being opened up. Just fantastic to be a fly on the wall, as Juna lets us uh, be in this essay. Okay, I'll give you one more passage. It's hard to choose paragraph after paragraph of this. It's so good. And I'm going to skip the, the time. Well, maybe I shouldn't skip it. I was going to say I'm going to skip the times they spend with Nora and the children, which are wonderful. James is never without his book of saints, Juna tells us. And once she found him laying full length on his stomach, poring over a suitcase full of notes that he had taken in his youth for Ulysses, and Nora sees him and says, It's the great fanaticism is on him, and it is coming to no end. End quote. And I'm, I'm going to actually tell you the story of Joyce and Nora. I'll give you this passage because it's so good. Quote, Sometimes his wife Nora and his two children have been with him. Large children, almost as tall as he is himself, and Nora walks under fine red hair speaking with a brogue that carries the dread of Ireland in it. Ireland is a place where poverty has become the art of scarcity, a brogue a little more defiant than Joyce's, which is tamed by preoccupation. End quote. Isn't that evocative? And here is Juna on Joyce's appearance. Quote, People say of him that he looks both sad and tired. He does look sad, and he does look tired, but it is the sadness of a man who has procured some medieval permission to sorrow out of time and in no place, the weariness of one self-subjected to the creation of an overabundance in the limited. If I were asked what seemed to be the most characteristic pose of James Joyce, I should say that of the head, turned farther away than disgust and not so far as death for the turn of displeasure is not so complete. Yet the only thing at all like it is the look in the throat of a stricken animal. After this, I should add, think of him as a heavy man, yet thin, drinking a thin, cool wine with lips almost hidden in his high, narrow head, or smoking the eternal cigar, held slightly above shoulder level, and never moved until consumed, the mouth brought to and taken away from it, to eject the sharp jets of yellow smoke. Because one may not ask him questions, one must know him. It has been my pleasure to talk to him many times during my four months in Paris. We have talked of rivers and religion, of the instinctive genius of the church, which chose, for the singing of its hymns, the voice without overtones, the voice of the eunuch. We have talked of women, about women he seems a bit disinterested, 
Were I vain, I should say he is afraid of them, but I am certain he is only a little skeptical of their existence. We have talked of Ibsen, of Strindberg, Shakespeare. Hamlet is a great play, written from the standpoint of the ghost. And of Strindberg, no drama behind the hysterical raving. We have talked of death, of rats, of horses, the sea, languages, climates, and offerings, of artists, and of Ireland. End quote. With journalism like this, and this is only one piece among a decade's worth of Juna Barnes's journalism, and a literary sensitivity and a sensibility like hers, it's no wonder that we can expect a modernist masterpiece to have been written by her. We're a little ahead of our story, though. It was not until 1936 that she published Nightwood. She spent the bulk of those years in Paris and then England, paid for at times by Peggy Guggenheim, who was a sponsor of a lot of these artists and writers at the time. Ezra Pound didn't like Juna Barnes for some reason. He was about the only one, it seems, at least the only one I found. But most of the others loved having her, her around. She was known for being witty, which doesn't always translate through time, which often makes us eager to read the literature they produced rather than just read about the person. If they didn't get something down, some short stories, some plays, a novel, something, then they can come across these raconteurs and these great wits can come across as a bit of a disappointment to posterity. The life of the party, the one everyone turned to, the one who was thought by everyone to be smarter and sharper and wittier than everyone else, but unless we get the work, they become sort of a footnote to history. So-and-so was a great conversationalist. Okay, did someone record that in a way that preserves it to posterity so we can see how important that was to society, so we can... We can get a sense of it ourselves. Has it become literature or a part of literary history? Or is it just a, you had to be there, she was the best kind of thing? Not every writer is lucky enough to have a Boswell. But back to Barnes. She had had a number of affairs by now with both men and women. She'd gotten engaged to a Harvard graduate and art publisher, Ernst Hanfstangel, a German-American businessman who, like Barnes, was multi-talented. He also gave a piano concert at the White House, in addition to his other endeavors. He broke up with Barnes because in World War I, this is hard to imagine, but it's true, in World War I, there was a rise in anti-German sentiment, and this bothered Hanfstangel, who dumped Barnes because he wanted a German wife. He then went to Germany. I say it's hard to imagine, not because of the anti-German sentiment or because he preferred a German wife, but because it's hard to imagine anyone turning down Juno Marx. <laughs> I guess I'm a little in love with her myself. He then went to Germany, and he fell in with Adolf Hitler, of all people. This is a guy who in America had been friends with Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Charlie Chaplin and Teddy Roosevelt and John Reed. He was in the Hasty Pudding Club at Harvard, and he wrote songs for the Harvard football team. He was a very gifted musician. Hitler enjoyed listening to him speak. Or, uh, sorry, to enjoyed listening to him play the piano. That was one of his ins with Hitler. But after he left America, he went to see Hitler speak at a rally and was entranced. His quote was, What Hitler was able to do to a crowd in two and a half hours will never be repeated in 10,000 years. Because of his miraculous throat construction, he was able to create a rhapsody of hysteria, end quote. 
Hanfstengel was in the Beer Hall Putsch in Munich, and he helped to publish Mein Kampf. And then he made some cracks, even though he was in Hitler's inner circle. Hitler enjoyed, as I said, listening to him play the piano. Although he was in the inner circle, he was ousted from it when he made some cracks about the fighting spirit of the German soldiers, which displeased the Fuhrer. And so Hanfstengel was sent up in a plane and told to parachute out. It turns out that was in hostile territory, which Hanfstengel seems to have figured out when they were in the air. It turned out to be a mission to kill him. So Hanfstengel demanded to know more from the pilot, and the pilot admitted that, yes, this was the plan, and yes, it was probably going to mean Hanfstengel would die. Hanfstengel talked him out of it, and the pilot landed the plane in a small airfield and claimed later it was an engine malfunction, but it allowed Hanfstengel to escape and return to America. This is the guy who dumped Juna Barnes, that jerk, and it was painful for her, and she later wrote a passage about him for Nightwood, but it was left out of the final version. There was a lot of Nightwood that was left on the table. It was cut down quite a bit for the published version. After that breakup, she had an affair with a socialist philosopher and theater critic named Courtney Lemon, and they lived together for a few years, and she called him her husband, so this would be husband number two, but neither of these were really marriages in the legal sense. One was to that stepbrother in that weird early marriage that barely lasted two months. And this one wasn't a marriage legally, I don't think. They called it that, her common law husband, but I don't think they were actually legally married. She had affairs with women throughout this period as well. And then in Paris, she fell in with an artist named Thelma Wood, who seems to have been the love of Juna Barnes's life. She was from Kansas. She was an artist. She had serious talent. One critic compared her work with Henri Rousseau. She wanted to be a sculptor for a while, and Barnes talked her into trying her hand at etchings, where she was uh, very successful. They lived together in a Parisian flat, and Barnes became kind of obsessed with her. Wood herself became an alcoholic, and she didn't want to be monogamous, as Barnes did. She was a, a hungry soul looking for love, I guess, or sex or something. Wood spent her nights out drinking and and trying to find casual sex partners. And Juna would go roaming the cafes in search of her. And this went on for years. And Juna started drinking herself to numb the pain. And the pain of all of this, her obsession with Thelma Wood, really wound up feeding into Nightwood. So let's start talking about that. Here's the concise description of the book for those who are wondering what it's about. It's the story of Robin Vogt and those she destroys, her husband, the Baron, their child, Guido, and the two women, Nora and Jenny, who love her. The whole is illuminated by the fantastic monologues of the renegade doctor, Matthew O'Connor. Most striking of all is Barnes's unparalleled stylistic innovation, which led T.S. Eliot to proclaim the book so good that only sensibilities trained on poetry can wholly appreciate it. And the New York Times Book Review to assert, admired by Joyce, Nightwood is as important to the history of the 20th century novel as Finnegan's Wake and more readable. That's a description I found online. But we don't go to Nightwood to find, uh, to look for a plot summary or plot description. You can read it for that. But you're kind of reading between the lines. If you do that, you're deciphering it. It's not written in a the style of a narrative or the style that you might expect 
if you're coming to it looking for, say, a 19th century novel. This is high modernism. Barnes was writing in a new style, probably influenced by Joyce. She said of Ulysses when she read it, I, n- I shall never write another line. Who has the nerve to after that? End quote. But Nightwood was written in this sort of dreamy, high prose style, charged language. When you read Juna's journalism, you see that she knows how to tell a story. She knows what narrative is. She knows what the requirements of it are. She knows how to keep the reader in the light rather than in the dark. But Nightwood is up to something else. This is the kind of book that today divides book clubs. Maybe some irreparable breaches from these book clubs. I did read one one account that said I quit my book club after they assigned this one. You can see why people turn to it, though. It's groundbreaking for its sexual frankness and its treatment of lesbianism, although Barnes didn't love being known for that. It's a masterpiece of modernism, says the Washington Post. William S. Burroughs called it one of the greatest books of the 20th century. T.S. Eliot, who was then an editor at Faber, published the book and wrote an introduction for it, which has become kind of famous. Quote, What I would leave the reader prepared to find is the great achievement of a style, the beauty of phrasing, the brilliance of wit and characterization, and a quality of horror and doom very nearly related to that of Elizabethan tragedy. End quote. That's high praise from Eliot. He says, To say that Nightwood would appeal primarily to readers of poetry does not mean that it is not a novel, but that it is so good a novel that only sensibilities trained on poetry can wholly appreciate it. Miss Barnes's prose has the prose rhythm that is prose style and the musical pattern which is not that of verse. This prose rhythm may be more or less complex or elaborate according to the purposes of the writer, but whether simple or complex, it is what raises the matter to be communicated to the first intensity. End quote. Well, we see where that's going to be the problem for book clubs today. Some readers will say, yes, please. I fell into it like I fell into a dream. It was vivid and provocative. It opened me up for more. There are still lines ringing in my mind. Others will say, lines? I'm not reading a novel for lines. I'm reading for character and story. I've pulled a few quotes from the Amazon page for Nightwood to get some general reader views. Remarkable, amazing, intense, fascinating. Also, pretentious, couldn't get into it. Pretentious twaddle, says a reviewer. OMG, don't bother unless you are a masochist. Ah, <laughs> uh, reader. So it's not for everyone, but for those who love it, truly love it. More recently, Jeanette Winterson adds to Eliot's introduction and says, quote, The language is not about conveying information. It is about conveying meaning. There is much more to this book than its story, which is slight, or even its characters, who are magnificent tricks of the light. This is not the 19th century world of narrative. It is the shifting, slipping, relative world of Einstein and the modernists, the twin assault by science and art on what we thought we were sure of. End quote. That's very astute. That's hard to top. But Winterson also has this beautiful passage, quote, Nightwood is itself. It is its own created world, exotic and strange, and reading it is like drinking wine with a pearl dissolving in the glass. You have taken in more than you know, and it will go on doing its work. From now on, a part of you is pearl-lined.
end quote. Nightwood is problematic. A critic in 2018 described its repellent prejudice, mostly against Jews. That's unfortunate. It was published by T.S. Eliot in 1936, and he himself does not have great record when it comes to anti-Semitism. And one wonders whether things would have been better had Juna Barnes written this in the 50s instead of the 30s. Hopefully, Nazism and the Holocaust brought prejudice to the fore in a way that would have benefited the book, especially for a modern sensibility. We will never know. It's also, as I said, it's not an easy book. It's shorter than Finnegan's Wake, but it's almost as puzzling. The New York Times in 1995 wrote, quote, Few authors have achieved so much celebrity with one novel as the elegant, exotic Juna Barnes, without whom no account of Greenwich Village in the teens or the left bank in the twenties is complete. That one novel was Nightwood. Overwritten and self-indulgent, it carries off its flaws with splendid nonchalance. Admired by Joyce, Nightwood is as important to the history of the 20th century novel as Finnegan's Wake, and more readable. I just realized I read that quote twice. <laughs> you see it a lot when it comes to Juna Barnes. Okay, here's a few passages of Nightwood to give you a flavor of it. This is, I'm jumping around here, but that's because it's kind of a book where that happens. It's fragmentary. So I'll just read some of the highlights. Quote, We are but skin about a wind, with muscles clenched against mortality. We sleep in a long, reproachful dust against ourselves. We are full to the gorge with our own names for misery. Life, the pastures in which the night feeds and prunes the cud that nourishes us to despair. Life, the permission to know death. We were created that the earth might be made sensible of her inhuman taste, and love that the body might be so dear that even the earth should roar with it. Yes, we who are full to the gorge with misery should look well around, doubting everything seen, done, spoken, precisely because we have a word for it and not its alchemy. End quote. Here's another quote. Our bones only ache while the flesh is on them. Stretch it thin as the temple flesh of an ailing woman, and still it serves to ache the bone and to move the bone about, and in like manner the night is a skin pulled over the head of day, that the day may be in a torment. We will find no comfort until the night melts away, until the fury of the night rots out its fire, end quote. You can see what I mean by prose poem, right? You could, you could get the sense of, of where this is going to take you. Here's another quote. Quote, she was nervous about the future. It made her indelicate. She was one of the most unimportantly wicked women of her time because she could not let her time alone and yet could never be a part of it. She wanted to be the reason for everything and so was the cause of nothing. She had the fluency of tongue and action meted out by divine providence to those who cannot think for themselves. She was the master of the oversweet phrase, the overtight embrace. End quote. That's some fine characterization there. Let's do one more. Here's one on Tuppany Upright, a prostitute so described because they, this uh, Tuppany Upright, the the label comes from the idea that these are women who will sell their wares for a tuppence, but all you can expect is for them to remain upright. Here's one of the tuppany uprights described in Nightwood. Quote, they used to walk along slowly, 
all ruffles and rags, with big terror hats on them, a pin struck over the eye and slap up through the crown, half their shadows on the ground and the other half crawling along the wall beside them, ladies of the hot sewer, taking their last stroll, sauntering on their last rotten row, going slowly along in the dark, holding up their badgered flounces, or standing still, silent and as indifferent as the dead, as if they were little girls, their poor damned dresses, hiked up and falling away over the rump, all gathers and braid, like a crusader's mount, with all the trappings gone sideways with misery. End quote. Here's Winterson again on Nightwood. We'll give her the last word on the novel. Quote, Peculiar, eccentric, particular, shaded against the insistence of too much daylight, Nightwood is a book for introverts, in that we are all introverts in our after-hours secrets and deepest loves. Our world, this one now, wants everything on the outside, displayed and confessed. But really, it cannot be so. The private dialogue of reading is an old-fashioned confessional, and better for it. What you admit here, what the book admits to you, is between you both and left there. Nightwood is a place where much can be said and left unsaid. For the rest of my life I will be climbing those stairs with Nora to the doctor's filthy garret. Something of Nightwood has lodged in me. It is not my story or my experience. It is not my voice or my fear. It is, through its language, a true-shot arrow, a wound that is also a remedy. Nightwood opens a place that does not easily skin over. There is pain in who we are, and the pain of love, because love itself is an opening and a wound, is a pain no one escapes except by escaping life itself. Nightwood is not an escape text. It writes into the center of human anguish, unrelieved, but in its dignity and its defiance, it becomes by strange alchemy its own salve. Is there such extraordinary need of misery to make beauty? asked the doctor, but the answer is already written. Yes. End quote. Barnes never again reached the heights that she reached with Nightwood, and for much of the rest of her life, she lived in what seems to have been misery or something like it. She had started drinking when she was chasing Thelma Wood around Paris, and she had grown dependent on it herself to numb the pain. She had many female lovers, although she later claimed, I am not a lesbian, I just loved Thelma. She briefly went to Arizona, but mostly she lived in New York, in Greenwich Village, for the rest of her life. Alcoholism took its toll, and finally she quit drinking when she realized or acknowledged that she could get nothing done creatively when she was drinking. Her drinking had impaired her that way, and then she wrote a play about her family history that she says she wrote, quote, with clenched teeth, and I noted that my handwriting was as savage as a dagger, end quote. Here's an eerie aftermath of that play. Her brother read the play and wrote her a letter that said, Juna, you want revenge for something long dead and to be forgotten. And she wrote in the margin of his letter that she wanted justice, not revenge. And next to long dead, she wrote the words, not dead. T.S. Eliot, still a fan, published the play, which was in verse, and he wrote a blurb for it that said, quote, Never has so much genius been combined with so little talent. End quote. It's an incredible blurb. What was he, th what was he thinking? 
Juna got angry when she saw the blurb and he withdrew it. I think what he meant was, this is a work of genius, as Nightwood was, but it's not easy, it's not simple, it's challenging. And he was okay with that. He published it, after all, and he was enough of a modernist to know that a simple and straightforward story was not necessarily the highest artistic accomplishment, his own works included. So I think he might have meant it as kind of a compliment. I think what he may have meant to say was this lacks the straightforward talent of telling a straightforward story, which is craft, not art, talent, but not genius. But even so, come on, Mr. Elliot, what a quote. (laughs) So much genius been combined with so little talent, no wonder she was upset. But he did revere her, nevertheless. He had five photographs in his office, and one was of her. Joyce was kinder to Barnes when he was alive, and Samuel Beckett once sent her a check for $3,400 when she needed money. Anna East Nin loved Nightwood and wrote to Juna Barnes, trying to get her to participate in her journal on women's writing, but Barnes was irritated that Nin had named a character Juna, so she refused to have anything to do with her and crossed the street when she saw her. Speaking of crossed streets, E.E. Cummings lived right across the street from Juna Barnes, and he used to open up his window and shout out, Are you still alive, Juna? Which probably annoyed her. Carson McCullers came, another acolyte came, and camped out on her doorstep until Juna finally called down, Whoever is ringing this bell, please go the hell away. Someone opened a feminist bookstore. This was in 1977, I think. uh, Someone opened a feminist bookstore in Greenwich Village and called it Juna Books as a tribute. Juna called up the bookstore and demanded that the name be changed. They didn't change the name, but they went out of business five years later. Barnes outlived all of her friends, and she hated that, being the last of her generation to go. Quote, it's terrible to outlive your own generation. I wish I could be dead, she said when she was 80, 10 years before finally dying at the age of 90. She has lived on, though, in Nightwood, which is still red, and in those who cite her as an influence, like Truman Capote and Dylan Thomas and David Foster Wallace, and those we've already mentioned, Carson McCullers and Anna East Nin, the writer Bertha Harris, who used to put roses in Juna's mailbox in yet another unsuccessful attempt to meet her, said that Juna Barnes was, quote, practically the only available expression of lesbian culture we have in the modern Western world since Sappho, end quote. And yet... If we call this a laurel wreath or a crown of sorts, it's one she did not seem to want to wear. She worked throughout her final years, even as she was ill, wearing, writing eight hours a day. But she never let herself become that revered person, the admired figure, the one who turned up to receive prizes and accolades. She could have, but she didn't. The writer Siri Hustvet loved Nightwood, and she said, I carried the book around with me, reread passages, pondered their meanings, and suffered with Nora Flood, whose liaison with the wild, amoral Robin Vogt becomes her abiding anguish, and I pored over the speeches delivered by my favorite character, the novel's bombastic but tender bard, Dr. Matthew O'Connor, a cross-dresser, petty thief, inveterate liar, and tragic anti-hero. End quote. After loving the book so much, she was in New York reading it, and she was on the subway, I think, and an elderly woman pointed and said, oh, you're reading Juna Barnes. I know her. 
I know her address. Do you want to write to her? So Siri wrote Juna a letter, attesting to the power of Nightwood and its importance to her. How many writers would be thrilled to get such a letter decades later from a whole new generation of fans hearing that they admired her work and knowing that the work was going to live on through these people? Isn't that the dream of every writer? Like I said, this is a woman who lived in pain and sometimes caused it too, but mostly lived in it. A year and a half later, she wrote back to Siri Hustvet. Your letter, she wrote, has given me great difficulty. That was it. That was the that was the whole letter. A year and a half later. What a woman. What a life. Juna Barnes. <laughs> Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. We covered some ground on that one, and yet we didn't cover everything. She has some other works we didn't even talk about at all. You should check out Juna Barnes for yourself. Maybe read about her and maybe read Nightwood. See how you like it. At least try a taste of it, especially for you fans of modernism, which I can hardly believe is really about 100 years old now. My God, it seems... Still so fresh to me, although even as I say that, I think that big parts of modernism are maybe not aging all that well. We'll see how things go over the next hundred years or so. Hundred years or so. What posterity will be choosing to read from that era. On a lighter note, we'll all be dead. (laughs) Just kidding. On a lighter note, why do I even bother with this stuff? Your humor is both annoying and titillating, Jack Wilson said a man in a message to me the other day. Here's $14 to buy yourself a drink. That's a lighter note, I guess. Maybe I'm so doomed I don't have many lighter notes. Although, why does my wife call me happy boy all the time? Which is an insult, in her words. Ah, well. Let's end this thing now before I laugh so hard I cry or cry so hard I laugh. Guess which one of those Beckett liked? Hint, it's the bleaker one, naturally. We are part of LitHub Radio and thepodglomerate.com. You can find them at www.thepodglomerate.com. You can help the show at historyofliterature.com slash shop or via our PayPal me account or at patreon.com slash literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.